Welcome to another edition of the Prospect Handbook Podcast. J.J. Cooper joined by Ben Badler as we are every week. We're going to talk a little bit about Manny Machado. We're going to talk a little bit about Jerickson Profar. We're going to talk about the Cubs. We're going to talk about the Royals and also take your questions today. So there's a lot of good stuff to listen to. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you that DraftDay.com brings fantasy games that last for just one day at a time. At DraftDay, you can put your sports knowledge to the test and win real cash prizes. Winners are paid out every night. They've already awarded over $10 million, and it's completely legal to play. This week only, Draft Day is offering a free fantasy baseball game with $150 in cash prizes just for BA listeners. Sign up by Monday at DraftDay.com and enter promo code PROSPECT to get entered. Thanks again to our uh, sponsors there at DraftDay.com. A great offer kind of to check out. Uh, but Ben, it's been a, uh, another fun week of baseball. There's a lot going on. I, before we kind of get into, you know, talk a little Cubs, talk a little Royals, I, I, I was fascinated by a story you had today. We're recording this on Thursday. I, I think you'll probably be listening to this Friday or a little later. So that was up on the site by the time you, you hear this about uh, a possible little loophole in the uh, CBA when it comes to international signings this year. And so it, kind of do you think that the MLB is aware of this or do you think that there's going to be some things they can do or is it? something where it may be open season for a, a team like the uh, Yankees or Rangers to spend a little bit more money than maybe MLB wants them to spend this year. Yeah, I don't know if a loophole is the right word because I think it's just part of, if, if you're going to transition to an international draft, at some point <laughs> there's going to be that one year where everybody knows that next year the international draft is coming. I think a lot of people expect that to be next year, although like we said in the story and, and if you've you know, read anything that we've written about <laughs> international signings over the last five, six years or so, you, you probably know that, um, you know, it's difficult to get information from MLB about what they do internationally, not just from the media, but <laughs> if you work for a team. I mean, teams are asking me, what am I hearing on uh, the international job? They don't tell teams information. I mean, th there'll be players who are being investigated who teams have signed and they won't get information on their own players who are under, uh, you know, the contract might not be official, but they're under reserve to the team already. <laughs> and uh, the teams can't get information from the commissioner's office. The players can't get information from the commissioner's office on their own <laughs> uh, investigations either, uh, or, or what's going on with them with their own signings for why they might be held up. So, um, but yeah, in, in this case, I think that, you know, there's an expectation that there's going to be a draft next year for the international players. So I think that, you know, that's something that teams like, you know, the Rangers or, you know, the Yankees, you know, two teams that come to mind just as teams that are historically aggressive spenders on the international market. But, you know, you look at teams like the Reds or or the Cardinals or maybe the Braves, uh, who are also, you know, going to finish with probably top five, you know, top ten, you know, records, I would think, at worst at this point in in baseball this year so and and probably are in pretty good shape going forward so yeah maybe you risk losing that you know 28th pick in the international draft next year and in 2015 but you know you'll probably get somebody you like at 28 but certainly not one of the the premium guys on your board i think you got to consider you know especially the rangers or, or the yankees uh given some of the the ways that they've spent in the past why not just say you know, let's sign Marcos Diplon and Jason Irizarry and not just stop there. Let's let's go for a bunch of other guys. And, and yeah, maybe you're overpaying a little bit 
this year, but you're, those, those kind of guys, somebody like Marcos Duplan is not going to be available uh, at the 28th overall pick in, in the draft if there is a draft next year. So I think it's something that they have to be uh, considering, certainly at this point, even though we don't know what the rules are going to be yet, uh, if there is going to be an international draft or not, but it's something they have to be uh, thinking about, certainly. And, you know, like we said in the article, too, there's nothing right. The CBA just says you lose your first your first round pick and your second round pick if you go over 15% of your bonus pool uh, for the next two years. But it doesn't say you can't trade for more money. Now, MLB could just, you know, read the story and <laughs> change the rules or, or come up with whatever rules they want to come up with. But there's, I, th- I think, teams who are going to be picking potentially at the bottom of an international draft next year need to think about this as something that they should consider to to be doing next year. And I think, I, I think that's something the Rangers and, and maybe the Yankees and maybe some of these other teams probably are already thinking about. Well, one thing that did jump out with that is, is that the teams will know before they have to start signing players whether there is going to be a draft next year, correct? Right. So they'll, they'll know by, I mean... MLB has to tell the union by June 1st, which to me is, uh, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but that's also the first day of the Dominican Summer League season. <laughs> but uh, and then the union has until the 15th to accept it or, or veto it. So they'll know by mid-June what's going on. And then, again, you know, July 2nd is the first date of the international signing period. So they have you know all year to go through and just say, oh, you know, this guy pops up somebody like... Um, you know, like a Jacob Constante last year with, you know, who popped up later in, in the in the signing period year. Uh, you know, if as guys pop up like that, and they do, especially pitchers, um, that's <laughs> that's going to happen. They could still say, even if they don't spend, you know, if they spend $3 million on July 2nd, they can still go throughout the whole year and say, yeah, you know, we know what the rules are next year. And now we even have a a better idea or what, what we're, where we're going to be picking the draft, or maybe it's the season's over, maybe it's October and, and you know exactly where you're going to pick in the draft. And you just say, all right, yeah, we're just going to overspend on all these guys that we probably wouldn't be able to get. Uh, otherwise, if, if we're picking late in the, in the first round of international draft, and we'll still have our, you know, our third and our fourth round picks. If it is a four round draft and look, the, the guy who's going to be there at, <laughs> This, the spread between you know losing pick number sixty versus keep it keeping pick number ninety, the, the difference in talent in those guys is, is not that big a deal. Uh, you're you're still going to get guys you want there. Uh, you're probably going to be able to sign non-drafted free agents, uh, you know, for up to a certain amount of money. Uh, so you can still sign plenty of players there. I, I think it's definitely something that they have to be considering. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, possibility. We'll we'll see what's going to happen a little bit more. We're only, as you pointed out, we're only a, a little over a week away from knowing for sure whether there's going to be an international draft next year. Uh, I get your inclination that you think it's highly likely that there is going to be an international draft check next year. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you look at the way, you know, with uh, Bud Selig says he wants an international draft, you read the CBA, all the language is sort of pointed towards 2014 as the ideal year where they want the international draft in place. Uh, you know, maybe it comes next year. Maybe it never comes. You know, there, there's still a possibility that it's it's not going to happen. Uh, and they've done a good job keeping pretty much everybody in the dark about what's going on. But but yeah, if if I had to put money on it, I, I'd say yeah. I think there is going to be an international draft next year. 
So we'll, we'll see. We'll obviously, if you follow Ben Badler at Ben Badler on Twitter, go to baseballamerica.com. We'll be covering that in, in intensely as we lead up to the possibility of an international draft. And, and if it does happen, kind of Ben will have all the breakdown of, of what that means going forward as well. But jumping back uh, to the U.S., looking at the, we want to talk about a couple teams today that aren't really doing a whole lot at the big league level, but they're kind of interesting in, in other ways. And the one I want to talk about the most today was the Cubs, in part because, as we just talked about with July 2, the Cubs are going to have the second most money to spend on the international uh, market when the July 2 signing date arrives. And it looks like that they're going to be very significant players in the international market this year. But looking at a kind of a bigger hole, looking at, at, the, at the team overall, the thing that strikes me is, is you, you, have the, you have the Astros who are in year three, year four now of rebuilding, and it still seems like they're a, a, a good ways away. The Cubs are also in a pretty significant rebuilding effort this year. They're also pretty bad at the big league level. They're not bad, as bad as the, the Astros. But then the thing that strikes me, and I just kind of want to ask you what you thought about their overall plan, but the thing that strikes me is, is where they're a long ways ahead to me of the Astros is, is they do have a couple of cornerstone guys who you can point to and say, yeah, I think that guy could be a, a key part of a, of a championship team. Whereas the Astros, I look at that Astros club right now and go, I don't see those guys. You're talking about the big league level, The right? big league level right now. And then we'll get to the minor league level. Yeah, I think you're right, because I think if, if you look at what they have in the major leagues, Rizzo, Castro, I think those are two, you know, Samarja, they can lock him up long term. Those guys are all guys that young, talented players who are only going to get better, who you can build around. You know, Castro's not having a great year, but I, I still think he's a guy who could, you know, win a batting title. And there's a lot more power uh, that you can project in his frame. Uh, the, the defense is, you know, kind of shaky at shortstop. But, uh, you know, I, I think he can stay there. And, yeah, I mean, those are guys you can build around the Astros. You know, Altuve is, is a nice, solid player. Uh, but there's not much else there. Like you said, they don't have the, the nucleus right now, the young nucleus at the major league level that the Cubs have. You know, that's not a lot of guys that the Cubs have or compared to the Astros. So it's not that great. But they do have more building blocks uh, there and and coming coming along the way too. I think compared to uh, the Astros too. There's some guys the Astros have coming up, but right now at the big league level, yeah, I, I gotta agree with you. There's there's more to build around with the Cubs and with the Astros. The other thing is, is I also think that the Cubs have more to trade if it comes around to you know we get to the trade deadline. I think the Cubs have some pieces that that could get some value from more than. I, obviously, the Astros have Bud Norris if they do want to trade him away, but but the Astros don't have a whole lot of pieces left. They they pretty much traded everyone away. I I do think that that a David DeJesus or you know maybe a, maybe a a Carlos Villanueva guy like that may have some value come uh, come trade deadline. Looking at the minor league level, though, the other thing that stands out to me is is I really do think the Cubs have a number of guys at the minor league level who who you can point to and say, okay, that guy could be a cornerstone guy down the road. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I, to me, it starts with Soler. I'm gonna Absolutely. To me, he he is the guy <laughs> in that system. I mean, we'll, I, I like Almora too. He's he's coming back now, uh, but Soler. I think Soler is gonna be ready before Almora is, and I think he's gonna have an even bigger impact 
uh, at the big league. And I like Almora a lot, but Jorge Soler, it's him everything you want in a right fielder. He's got to he's got to make some uh, adjustments, not so much to the on-field part of the game, but um, as a player, he does everything you want in a right fielder. He he, he he's going to hit for a high average, I think. Um, he's going to get on base a lot. He's going to hit for power. He's got to get a little bit better on his roots in right field, but he's got a good arm. He runs pretty well, for, especially for a guy his size. Everything he really could ask for in a, in a corner outfielder. I, I completely agree that he's the guy, if you said... And, and the other thing, again not, again, not a knock on Elmore, but the reality is, is that, to me, the difference is, is that Solera has that premium power, whereas... It, when you look at, uh, you know, Al Mori, what you're you're looking at is is the guy who who could have solid power. You know, he he should hit for average with you know 15 homers maybe. You compare that and you say, okay, with Soler, I think he could hit for average as well. And yeah, I mean, it's going to be a lot more power than that, or it should be a lot more power than that. It's it's a uh, it's he is the guy. If you say, okay, who are they building around? He's the guy that jumps out. I do think they have also a nice bit of complementary pieces to kind of, you know, to add around those guys. But but Soler, Almora, and then really, you know, coming up to we're going to have, you know, when we get to the draft, when we get to July 2, the Cubs are also very much primed in to bring in a, a pretty significant infusion of, of new talent at that point as well. If you would just touch on Ben for a second, like, uh, you know, on the international side, it seems like they're going to be very aggressive, does it not? Yeah, I think that, you know, they have the second biggest international bonus pool. The only team that has more than them is the Astros, and it's not that significant of an amount. But, you know, I think the Astros are probably spread it out a little bit more over a bunch of guys that they have rated highly, whereas the Cubs are saying, you know, we're going to throw all of our money. You know, everybody's talking about them being on two guys. Eloy Jimenez, a Dominican outfielder who's, you know, six foot four. Very similar to Elia Hernandez. He probably runs a little bit better than Hernandez, and he's got an easier swing uh, than Hernandez does. And, and for some guys, that's a concern because they didn't really like Elia Hernandez, and he had a really tough debut for the Royals last year. Grant, he was in the Pioneer League, which is an extremely aggressive assignment, so I don't really quite know what to make of Hernandez at this point, but I think it's too early to, to start panicking. But, yeah, there, there's some guys who didn't really – care for Hernandez when he was an amateur player and then they're not crazy about uh, Jimenez. I mean, anytime you have, you know, long arms like that um, and you're not dominating in, in games, it's going to cause concerns for scouts. But <laughs> at the same time, other guys see him, you know, having the ingredients to hit the bat speed is there. Uh, there's, you know, projectable power there, although it's more of like a flatter swing plane. So you're, he's not a guy you think is going to hit, you know, 30 home runs. But, you know, I think they're they're targeting him. They're targeting Glaber Torres, who is a Venezuelan shortstop, who, you know, a lot of presentability, you know, some surprising power for his size. Uh, a lot of guys think he's going to stay at shortstop. Some see him moving off the position. But, you know, there's a lot of teams that have those two as, you know, two of the top guys on their board, and, and the Cubs are going to go pretty aggressively after those two guys, maybe trade for some more money. But, you know, those two guys alone are probably going to cost them – um, and if not just those two players and maybe in some sort of package deal, uh, pretty much all of their bonus pool. 
So between those guys and then obviously on the draft side, you're talking about adding either probably Mark Appel or, or Jonathan Gray too. So that's a pretty significant influx of amateur talent immediately. It, it, I look at the Cubs and at the end of the year, if they're not in our top five as far as organization talent rankings, I'll be shocked because we talked about Soler, Almora, Javier Baez, who we haven't talked about yet, but is still one of the better shortstop prospects in the game. Pierce Johnson, a, a pretty polished uh, uh, right-hander with a pretty good arm. Aronis Vizcaino very well may qualify for next year's list as well because he's coming back from Tommy John surgery. That's, you know, and then again, if you add a Sonny Gray, or not Sonny Gray, Jonathan Gray or Mark Appel, you add the guys that you're talking about on the international market, that sure sounds like it's going to be a, a pretty top end of the, uh, uh, you know, the organization talent rankings. That segues to a team that was at the top of the organization talent rankings a couple of years ago. Kansas City Royals, you rewind the clock a couple of years ago, had a, the, the, the first team we've ever had who had nine players in our top 100 prospects. Look at them right now, a lot of those guys are in the big leagues, but the team as itself is, is below 500. And really the guys that kind of are, are getting the fingers pointed at them, more than anything, the pitching has been very good, which is kind of surprising considering the, the recent history of the Royals, but the starting pitching has been very good. But the lineup's been pretty poor, and a big part of that is, is that Eric Hosmer's not really hitting that much. Mike Moustakis is not hitting at all. Looking at that, then, you know, is this, is this a case of, do you think there should be some patience, like, hey, these guys are going to turn around, they're still young? Or is there some questions there of, of why... Two of the better hitting prospects we've seen come up in in recent years, both of them are really scuffling uh, for the Royals. I think it's it's probably a little bit of each. Um, you know, we, they also have Salvador Perez, who is performing. So I, I don't think uh, it's just oh well, the Royals can't develop hitters just because Hosmer and and Mustakas are struggling. I think that you know. <laughs> Hosmer is a guy, especially remember early in his career, he, he did struggle. Um, so it's it, he does have some history of, of taking time to make adjustments. You know him and you know him and Mustakas are are twenty three and, and twenty four years old. I mean Mustakas is another guy who, you know Hosmer has better I think strike zone awareness than Mustakas. Mustakas will he just has a, a knack for. Uh, being able to make contact, and sometimes there's guys where, yeah, it's it's a good thing, but it, it can also be a bad thing where <laughs> you can make contact with that pitch on the edge of the strike zone, but it's not a hitter's pitch. <laughs> and I think that's something that he's learning at the big league level right now. It's something I think he's always sort of dealt with, but especially at the big league level, that really becomes magnified because the pitchers are, are so much better than what he's having to make those adjustments to when he got to uh, the Carolina league or, or when he got to double a. So to me, I'm actually more concerned about their pitching development because you look at the rotation and yeah, you know, James Shields is pitching well, Jeremy Guthrie is pitching well, Irvin Santana uh, as an ERA under three, don't think a lot of people were thinking that was going to happen. But, you know, more concerning to me is that, you know, what happened to Mike Montgomery? Um, what happened to John Lamb? What happened to, uh, you know, Danny Duffy having going down with surgery? Uh, to me, the 
the development or a lack of development on the pitching side is a little bit more concerning than what's going on with the hitters who I think maybe we do just need a little bit more patience with them. No, the reality is is that you, you pretty much have to go back to Zach Greinke to say who's the last homegrown starting pitcher who's had a significant career of, of any sort for you know to come up through the Royal system. And obviously that's, that's going back a pretty long ways right now. And, you know, there is some, I, I hate to use the word luck, but we, we, in the case of a guy like John Lamb, okay, Tommy John, we talked about this, I think, last week on the podcast. Tommy John surgery is not 100%. It's about 90%. You know, 9 out of 10 guys who have Tommy John surgery are going to come back and they're going to be just as good as new. John Lamb right now looks like he's one of those 1 in 10 who's not coming back as good as new, which is, you know, it, it happens. I don't think that can necessarily be, be pointed at and say, you know, where well, the Royals really botched that. Guys get hurt, and every now and then a guy doesn't come back from Tommy John surgery. That being said, when you're talking about a, a large number of guys, like you're talking about with the with the Royals, who of starting pitchers who who really it happens. It seems like it's one of two things: either they don't develop at all, or they end up being relievers. And you can add to me when you're talking about that discussion. You're adding Aaron Crow to that discussion. You're adding Luke Hochover to that discussion. Well, then you have to start asking the question: Is there something that's going wrong about how they develop pitching? And if you're, you know, if you're looking for theories, I mean, one theory out there is is that there are there are four seam curveball organization. Four seamer is you know is really a a really good power pitch, but at the same time. If you, you have to, to really dominate with that as a starting pitcher, you have to have a really premium arm. And you could make the argument that, that maybe you know, letting guys use a two-seamer, use a movement on the fastball a little bit earlier in development, the, you know, the, the argument of that is, is that you teach guys to pitch a little bit more, teach guys to have a, you know, how to move the ball, manipulate the ball a little bit more with grip, you know, and, and, and a little bit of run, a little bit of, you know, can cut it a little bit, things like that that maybe that helps you build more middle-of-the-rotation starters. The Royals are, you know, the Royals approach is maybe kind of the approach that, that you're trying to build front of the rotation starters, but the flame-out rate for that may be a little bit higher. That's, that's how strict are they? me, you know, from outside the organization. Other thing that I've had people outside the organization say is, is that when you see the Royals pitchers, it, it, it looks like a lot of them, you can tell it's a Royals pitcher because they, they seem to have a, a pretty standard approach for how they, they like to uh, have their pitchers' deliveries look, how they like to have them pitch. And so there's not a whole lot of uh, variation in that. And the argument that you have from some people you know, outside, you know, from different organizations is, is that you can't get that cookie cutter. You, you need to basically look at a pitcher and say, what does this guy do well, and use it that way instead of saying, here's how, as an organization, we, uh, we think you need to develop. Yeah, that's that. I mean, when you were describing it, the word cookie cutter definitely came to mind. I mean, how strict are they in their approach of you need to throw, you know, these specific pitches or your delivery should look this way, either when they're drafting guys or when they're developing guys? I mean, are they on? Does it seem like they're on the same page even? Because sometimes it seems like there's teams that draft certain guys who are you know, who do things one way and then the development side isn't really on the same page. They have a philosophy where 
they want guys to do something different. Um, it, it, I mean, it's almost like you know, this not a not the perfect example like Trevor Bauer in Arizona. I mean, you had to know what you're drafting when you draft this guy, and then you want him to make all these changes immediately. I mean, what what sense do you have that the Royals are you know either on the same page drafting and and with the with the scouting department and the development department, or in terms of how you know rigid they are in terms of you know, all right, this is what we need, this is what we want all of our our pitchers to be doing. I do think that they're actually on a, on a pretty uh, pretty much on the same page. I think part of that is is I think there's a pretty strong connection in, in that organization. Yeah, you know, we you've dealt with them, I'm sure too. There's organizations where you'll be talking to them at times you can realize, wow. There's really a pretty strong disconnect. There's almost kind of a, a a battle going on between you know scouting and the player development sides. That's not the case with the Royals from every inclination that that I'm getting from from talking to people there and all, and talking to people you know off the record. I, I don't get that idea. They also, I think, when it comes down to pitching, a lot of it is is that they draft guys a lot of times that seem to fit the approach that they have. Um, there have been definitely some guys who've, who've kind of battled back and forth with them uh, on you know the approach. Uh, the guy that jumps out. No, everyone talks about Mike Montgomery. Another guy that jumps out is this Tim Melville. I feel like when he was running into trouble, and, and he's a, a pretty prominent kind of. I guess at this point you'd have to say bust for them as far as a, a pitching prospect with good stuff and got a lot of money. You know, he wanted to to try some different things, and they kept telling him, no, 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 focus on mastering these things first before you try anything else. And so I know there was times where I think he was trying to, you know, slip in a slider every now and then because he felt the slider would, would be helpful for him and, and they wanted to throw a curveball. But if you look at like with, you know, the last guy last year they drafted Kyle Zimmer. Kyle Zimmer fits what they're trying to do. He's a four-seam curveball kind of guy. When they drafted Aaron Crow, Aaron Crow, his best pitch, his best secondary pitch coming out of college was a slider. They didn't say to Aaron Crow, you can't throw a slider. We, they said, you draft, we drafted you out of college. You got a really strong slider. We're not asking you to change who you are. You can use your slider. So they're not that cookie cutter where they say, no, no, no. I know we drafted a slider, a guy who's a fastball slider guy, but we're not going to let him do that. They don't go to that extreme. But I, I do think, you know, I, I think also with that, you can ask some questions about, like I like Aaron Crow. I understand he came off a bad year, they needed him up in the bullpen, they put him in the bullpen, but in the long run, you end up getting a, a lot less bang for your buck there. They drafted a guy, you know, a first-round pick, who the reality is, is that very quickly kind of ended up being a, a setup man. And is that, is that getting value out of, obviously that guy would be a lot more valuable if you said, okay, we're going to let him kind of, Fight through some things to to hopefully develop as a starter. That you know now right now they don't have as much of a need at the moment for starting pitching because they not only have the five guys that got the rotation right now, but before too long they'll have Danny Duffy and Felipe Paulino coming off of uh, Tommy John surgery coming back. But in the long run, you still look at it and you say you know they have to develop. You you can't. It's hard to envision the Royals having long-term success without developing homegrown starting pitching. And I know, I mean, I follow a lot of uh, Royals fans on, on Twitter, you know, and, and a lot of them talk to me on Twitter as well. And 
right now, the, the problem that also that you're going to have in Kansas City, if you are the Royals organization, and I think this is a problem that's been well earned, is that you have a very passionate fan base who, at this point, understandably expects the worst. And when I say understandably expects the worst, you've got 35-year-olds walking around who barely remember the Royals ever you know, playing a, a playoff game, a significant playoff game. That's, that's a, you know, you, you shouldn't, if you, if you have to go back to 1985 for the last time that the team really, really was, uh, meant something, fans are understandably going to expect the worst. When you throw on top of that, I, I know that the Royals want to preach patience with a guy like Moustakis or a guy like Hosmer, but when you go off in the offseason and you make a trade for James Shields, who's going to hit free agency at the end of next year, you're basically saying, no, 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 we're not in the rebuilding mode now, we're in the win mode now. And because of that, there's understandably uh, some expectation, you know, that, that hey, this has got to be a win now mode. Fans get frustrated when they see a guy hitting a buck 80 staying up there. At the same time, this is the other, the, the other thing that the Royals, I think, face right now is, I was on Kansas City Radio Station earlier this week, and they're saying, you know, do you send Moustakas down? And really, the, the problem is, is that this is, the Royals team as it is right now, barring a couple of guys who are going to, as we said, Duffy and Paulino will come back from injury, maybe a guy like Lewis Coleman who's sitting in AAA who, you know, could come up if you need help in the bullpen. There's not a whole lot of help sitting at AA or AAA. Yordano Ventura maybe could help you down the road later in the year. But there's not a lot of help. If they said, hey, we're going to send Mike Moustakis down, there's not a real third baseman to replace him with. And that's kind of part of this issue. Do you think that anything could be served by sending Mike Moustakis down? Or do you think it, it makes more sense to kind of keep putting him out there and, and hope he, he works through it at the big league level? No, I think it's you're going completely backwards. If you send him down, if you send Hosmer down, one, I don't think you're going to get a better replacement for him. Two, I mean, th- these two guys, if if you're going to be, <laughs> if you if you want that winning franchise, these guys are, you're hoping that they're going to be part of the middle of your lineup. The only, the, they've already shown that they can hit in AAA. Uh, going, sending them back to AAA, what, so they can put up, you know, nicer looking numbers uh, so they can have a little bit more success or or confidence. I mean, I don't think them hitting AAA pitching is really going to do all that much for their confidence. I mean, they, they know they can hit AAA pitching. They need to be able to make adjustments at the big league level. And the only way they're going to be able to do that is right now they, they're good. <laughs> they can mash in AAA, but right now they're having struggles at the big league level. The only way they're going to learn is by facing more big league pitching. Um, I, I just, if you send them down to AAA, they're not going to be able to, they're not going to face the pitchers who they need to make the adjustments against. And the only way they're going to do that is by facing big league pitchers. And again, and the thing you just touched on, if you're saying, okay, Miguel Dejado is going to be playing third base instead of Mike Moustakis or Irving Farouk, you're, you're also, as we said, this is a win now situation. The reality of it is, is that, yeah, okay, let's say they send Moustakis down for a couple of weeks and he hits. It's going to be hard to make that decision of when does that guy come back up because also on top of that, Omaha is a very good place to hit. The entire PCL is a very good place to hit. So as it's going to be very hard to say, okay, hey, two weeks, he's got it all fixed. fixed. 
or does he? And if he comes back up and the same problems continue, then there's only so many times you can go to that well. Again, that's not to say that there couldn't, I, I think there could be some good things for, you know, for sitting in the stock is down. But to me, the really, the thing is, is that if you had, uh, to put it in a scenario, if you had Will Myers still around and he was playing third base regularly and you said, you know what, we're going to put Myers at third base until Moustakis is, is kind of figured things out, that's a different story because then you can say at the big league level we think we can win better, more games because Will Myers is playing third base than Mike Moustakis. They don't have that guy right now. They don't have, you know, uh, they don't have a guy, Jeff Francoeur, you know, is, is kind of, they're, they're trying to platoon him in the outfield now. They don't really have a guy to, to take over and say he can play every day out there. The interesting thing with that, though, kind of bringing us to another team, Moustakis, you know, did really well, tore up uh, AAA, struggling in the big leagues. Hosmer tore up AAA, struggling in the big leagues. The other interesting thing is Will Myers traded in the offseason for James Shields, now playing for here in Durham for AAA Durham Bulls for the Rays, destroyed uh, AAA Omaha. He's struggling in a second try at AAA. And part of it is I, I do think there has to be some cause for concern about just how difficult it is to get a lead on guys who really mash in the PCL because the PCL is, is such a, uh, a great hitter's league. I think that all three of these guys are going to hit. But I, I do think it, it is easy to kind of get, for all of us, to get a little overexcited because of just how much easier it is to hit in the PCL than it is in the majors or even than it is in the International League. And I mean, at the same time, I think it's easy just to panic over. I mean, these guys have had you know, 160 plate yeah. appearances. And yeah, it's, it's cause for concern. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. And especially given what, you know, Hosmer did all last year. But, um, I think there's some sort of middle ground <laughs> that we have to strike here because it's not all right. Let's all let's let's demote these guys at AAA just because they you know started out you know struggling this year uh, or let's you know and I, you're, I know you're not saying this about you know Will Myers either but uh, you know it's it's not time to panic over oh, no. over Myers you know there's 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 some there's a re the strikeout rate is since last year has been a red flag and it's it's gone up a little bit and and that's a concern but. Um, I think that there's people make too many rash decisions over what's gone on over the first, you know, hundred, you know, sixty plate appearances for these guys. I mean, we, we remember we were talking about Shelby Miller last year for you know most of the year <laughs> as a guy who you know what's wrong with Shelby Miller, and now it's you know could Shelby Miller be a, a Cy Young candidate <laughs> at the big league level? So I think sometimes it's. You know, we want to make these decisions over what's gone on over over a couple of months of the season, and you know, I think we need to give these guys a little bit more rope than they get sometimes. Well, and and the other thing I think with Myers, uh, a lot of it is after your minor league player of the year, you hit thirty, you know, thirty seven home runs, uh, you know, double A, triple A, and you're told, hey, you're going back to triple A. Yeah, that's it's easy to be a little bit bored with the level. And that there's no, not not just that you're going back to AAA, but that there's nothing you can do about it. And nothing you do in the first two months of the season is going to get you brought up. That your 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 promotion is not going to be a merit-based performance or a merit-based prom promotion because it's they're going to wait until they can hold on to you for another year. Yeah, I mean, it's that's something where we saw Bryce Harper last year. Seemed kind of bored when he was in the minors, goes to the majors, and boom, the, the, the switch turns on. 
you know, it's just that I, that I don't. I do think there are some conservative amount of strikeout rate, but but overall, uh, I don't think that's a, a, a significant long-term cause for concern in any way. I think it's more of yeah, I agree. I, I think it's more of very much a he's bored. It's hard to kind of focus and lock in when you're doing this again, and you've already proven that you feel like that at AAA. You, you kind of hey, I, I, at this time last year we were talking about how how far away is Will Myers from the big leagues. I remember talking about the Futures game thinking, there's no way this guy's going to be in the minors for that much longer. And here we are almost a year later, and there he still is. So it's, it is what it is. Jump into a, uh, talk a little bit about a couple of big leaguers for a second. We, we were talking about this before the podcast, so we want to talk about it. That you look at, we talked about Bryce Harper, you look at Mike Trout. Manny Machado is, was the third guy in the, uh, in the trifecta last year. Didn't get at the same, you know, the same level of recognition kind of last year, understandably, because Harper and Trout went off to a, a whole new level and Machado did not. But now watching what he's doing this year, Ben, is he in that same conversation with them or is, you know, as far as top young stars or is that getting a little too much to, to kind of put him in there with, with guys who've, who've done already what Mike Trout and Bryce Harper have done? Well, I mean, it, what's, it depends what the conversation is, I guess. I mean, we're talking about who are the best young players in the game. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's in there. Uh, but I don't think he's at – he's not at the level of, of Trout. To me, Trout is, is the best of all those guys. Um, and Harper, I don't think, is far behind. But to me, both of those guys are pretty clearly a cut above Machado. And I say that thinking that Machado could certainly be <laughs> – if, not just an all-star, but an MVP candidate this year and and down the road as well. I mean, th- there's there's the notion out there that like Manny Machado is somehow, you know, getting you know disrespected or, or not enough attention because he doesn't get because he doesn't get the accolades that you know Trout, who just had one of the greatest seasons in the history of baseball, just had, or Bryce Harper, who was just. <laughs> had one of the greatest seasons ever for a 19-year-old and now is already one of the best players in Major League Baseball. Um, you know, I, I think it's a little overblown. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, Machado was a high draft pick, always thought of as a high prospect when we were ranking him coming up through the minors, which obviously was very brief. He wasn't there very long. But I still don't – he's not at the level of Trout. He's not at the level of Harper. But this is a guy who he, – he's at third base right now. You could put him at shortstop, and I think he'd be one of the best shortstops in the game already. I mean, this is a guy who can – outstanding hand-eye coordination, great swing. He can hit for average. You know, you look at his size and the, the raw power that he has and that I think he's going to continue to have uh, down the road. He, he's going to hit for average. He's going to hit for power. Uh, you know, I think the ad, the on base percentage is going to be it's it's going to improve as he you know the pitcher is going to pitch around him a little bit more. He's going to learn which pitches to to lay off of, even if they are in the strike zone. Just because he can make contact with him doesn't mean you should swing at him. I think that's another area where he's just going to continue to grow and improve. So yeah, I mean, I think he's one of the best, not just one of the best young players in the game. He's one of the best players in the game right now already, who just happens to be young. Uh, but I don't think he's at the level of Trout. I, I don't think he's at the level of, of Harper right now either. Okay. Now I'll ask you a different question then. Comparing the profile, assuming that we think that we, we both think Machado 
can and probably will eventually move back to shortstop. Who would you rather have among shortstops, uh, Manny Machado or Jerkson Profar? Yeah, I spent a while thinking about this one because you're right. Let's let's assume that they're both shortstops because Machado is playing third base just out of necessity. You could put him at shortstop right now, and he'd be, you know, at least average there, maybe maybe better. Um, certainly well above average defensively at third base. Though I think that Machado, there's more power potential with Machado and, and that makes him very, very intriguing for me in this conversation. But I think that overall, I think you're going to get a little bit more value from Profar. I think Profar, I think both of these guys could be hitting, you know, 300 to 320 pretty consistently over the course of their career. Um, Right now, I, I you know, if we're talking about a player right now, I would give the edge to Machado. But long term, I would go with with Profar because I think once you know, once that strength comes, he's going to take off. He doesn't have the strength that Machado has right now, but I think that there's higher potential for Profar to get on base at a higher clip than Machado. You know, I think Machado is a is a an aggressive hitter, and he he like we so like we were talking about he. He swings the pitches that he can, he can hit, but he doesn't necessarily right now lay off some of the pitches that are maybe on the edges that he's he can still do damage with, but aren't the best pitches for him to swing at. Um, whereas Profar, I think, has a better understanding of waiting for his pitch to hit, getting a hitter's pitch in his count, uh, taking advantage of it, and then also laying off pitches outside of the strike zone to be able to draw walks. I could see him being a shortstop with, you know, a consistent 400 on base percentage with, you know, 15 to 20 home runs playing, you know, as good, if not better defense at shortstop as Manny Machado. And, you know, just like Machado, he's, I don't know if he's going to get the chance to play there because they got Andrews at shortstop and, and Andrews is probably the better defensive shortstop, but you could put Profar there. I think he'd be an above average defensive shortstop too. Uh, which isn't a bad luxury to have. So, I think if you're if you're talking about fantasy baseball, you might go with uh, Machado because I don't think that you know Profar's on base percentage is, is going to help you if if you play in a league where where that doesn't matter. And I don't think Profar is going to give you a, a ton of stolen bases, but um, I think Machado is going to have the edge and power. Profar is going to get get on base a little bit more. You know when it's it's that close, and and I don't really feel great about it because I. I you know, I think it's almost a coin flip at this point, but I'd be inclined to go with the guy who can get on base a little bit more compared to the guy with the, the bigger power potential. Yeah, I, I'm going to go Machado, and the reason I do that is is I do think, yeah, I'm, and it's just like you said, it's, I, I can see the argument either way, but the argument to me for Machado is, is that there is more power there. And I think if you look at the two guys, I think Profar has more power. If you look at Profar, you may not think he has the power that he does. He has a very whippy bat. He, he can, you know, he can hit the ball out because of that. But if you look at Machado, Machado is going to hit for power because he's just a, a pretty massive, you know, baseball player. And especially as he continues to get older, especially as he continues to fill out, get stronger, you're going to see that power come in more and more and more. And I think... In both cases, you're talking about guys who have a very good feel for the game as well. So, 
you have a guy who can stick at shortstop at least I think for the 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 short term and the medium long term. Maybe yeah, I don't want to bring him up because I don't think he's as good as A Rod but was in his prime. But Alex Rodriguez eventually moved off of shortstop partly because he came to a team that that already had a shortstop. But at some point, A Rod was going to become too slow to stay at shortstop because he was such a big, you know, a big athlete. That may happen long term in Machado. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I mean, I think we're talking as he nears 30, maybe or something, which is many years from now at this point. But to me, I, I do think. Profar should get on base probably a little bit more than, than Machado will. I think Machado's going to hit for enough more power than Profar to cancel that out. Uh, I think both of them will be very good shortstops. So uh, I'll take either one. Uh, I'll be quite happy with either one. But uh, if I if you made me pick one, I, I'm going to I'm going to say Machado. And again, like you said, I don't even know if I feel good about it. It's just like okay, if you make me pick one, that's the one I'm going to go with. So before we wrap this up, we, we have some questions on Twitter, as we always do. So Ben, I'll start throwing a couple of these out to you, and, and we'll see what we, uh, uh, you know, what we, what we want to say about them. So Expos, Expos Fan 1998, Alan Dudek asks, uh, guys, most impressive teenager in the Midwest League so far not named Buxton? That's a, that's a put you on the spot one a little bit, I know, but... I've been kind of running through uh, and trying to think of a couple of guys. Even come to mind immediately for you, Ben, uh, a couple of guys for me. Um, Jesse Winker's been really good, the Reds outfield prospect. I don't know about best, because that's hard to really kind of scan the entire league on the top of your head, but but he's a guy who stands out to me who's, who's still a teenager who's been really good. And obviously, no one's been close to as good as Buxton is, because Buxton's been <laughs> truly special. But does anyone else jump out to you? Uh, you know, one guy who who's surprised me is Renato Nunez. With the, yeah, well, first of all, we should preface that yeah, nobody has been as good as Buxton. We're, we're talking <laughs> a whole different category here. Yeah, Buxton might be. I mean, I think there's a realistic chance. I mean, I've said before, I think he'd be in the top five prospects by the end of the year. He might be number one by the end of the year. He could be. Um, I mean, I, I, we we got to give him a little more time. We got to talk to more scouts, but. He does everything that you could want, <laughs> just about everything you want in a prospect uh, at an extremely high level. I mean, we people say, "Oh, this guy's a five-tool player," when really they're not a true five-tool. This guy has potentially five above-average tools. I mean, what? I mean, you look at it. Okay, this is a guy who it, the arm. Okay, let's just we'll go in backwards order of importance. The arm is a plus-plus arm. I mean, we we've seen that. He showed that on the mound in, in high school. Okay. The speed, it's an 80 speed. Fair? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, if you want to be harsh, it's maybe 70, but yeah. I mean, okay, let's just say 70. So that's still yeah. five tools because that's a plus-plus tool again. Okay. We've seen with the, the defense, the defense is going to be plus defense. We're seeing it in, in many ways cases now already. Then you go to the, the, the power... It's plus power at the age he is, and it's going to get better. I mean, that's and then you look at the hit tool. I don't know a whole lot of you know teenagers who can hit over 300 in the Midwest League. That's what he's showing right now. It's it's a special special combination of tools. He's a special player. Yeah. So look, Buxton in his own category. You know, a couple of guys have surprised me. Um, 
you know, Renato Nunez of the A's had a really good year last year. You know, when he signed, when Oakland signed him for a lot of money a couple of years ago out of Venezuela, they, you know, there were scouts who thought out of all the guys in Latin, or certainly in Venezuela at least, he had the best chance to hit for average and power. He went out in the Dominican Summer League, and they signed another guy in, out of the Dominican Republic that year, Vic Maldela Cruz, who went out and had a better year than Nunez did in the DSL. And Nunez really struggled at the plate. He struggled defensively, which we expected. In fact, there was some thought, you know, <laughs> he may be, maybe moving to catcher. He's that bad defensively at third base because you don't know if what you you don't really want him in a corner outfield spot. Um, I'm still not sold that he's going to stay at, at third base, but the hitting is definitely there. I mean, he's he's hitting, he's hitting for power, and he's doing it in a league where, especially this time of year, that's it's a tough league to hit in, uh, especially if it's your first go around in that league. But I mean, you know, he's hitting about 260, but I think he has like nine home runs. He's slugging over 500. Uh, he's been an impressive guy that in that league. Uh, the other teenager in that league who surprised me from an offensive standpoint is uh, Anthony Santander with uh, Cleveland. He is a guy, and they signed him for like 350, something around there, kind of a low mid six figure kind of bonus. Only, I think it was like two years ago because yeah, it must've been two years ago. Because last year he debuted in the Arizona league. And I was like, what are they doing? Putting that guy in the Arizona league. Almost, you put like your seven figure, like your most most advanced guys, mm-hmm. who you sign as an international, you know, as a July second guy, which is what he was. He signed as a sixteen year old. You you only put your most advanced guys in the Arizona League or the Gulf Coast League. They brought him over, and he hit extremely well. And let me jump in with that. The other thing with that is is that you also only have a limited number of visas. So when you send the guy over, it's a sign right there of how impressed they are with the guy. Right, and especially when he was an amateur player, like he was just learning to switch hit. He was a guy whose tools really came on as July second was approaching, and I think that helped his his market. He started running better. He started throwing better. He started showing some signs of improvement at the plate, but it wasn't like he was a super super high profile guy. But he he hit so well, and we ranked him as the number thirteen prospect to the Indians. But I, I didn't think they would send him to a, a full – I thought he'd be going a short season, go to the New York Penn League when it started up. But they brought him over. I think he's only been about 15 games since he's been in Lake County. But he's hitting almost 300 there, and <laughs> he's been a lot better than I you know, would have expected him to be at this point. I think he was a guy that you know, we liked as a solid prospect a couple of years ago when he signed, but he has developed so much faster uh, than I would have expected. You know, the one other guy, too, we mentioned Buxton, you know, Carlos Correa, too, hasn't been as electric of a start as Buxton. But I, I, if you look close, I think that it's starting to come around for him. Uh, we were talking about Machado. This is a guy who gets comparisons to uh, Manny Machado. And, and you look at Correa, um, I don't think the, the hand-eye – the, the, the strikeout rate is going to be as low as Machado's, but I think he's, he's going to get on base a little bit more than Machado. I think he's going to hit. I think down the road uh, that, that power is going to come. So if, if you're looking at, you know, from an offensive standpoint, a, a few different teenagers in that league who stood out, those would be my three guys. No, that's a, that's a pretty good list. Um, kind of going on to a couple more Twitter questions here before we, we head out. 
Historian Andrew, which is Andrew H. Martin, asks, out of the two prospect revivals, which is more legit, Michael Alanzar or Anthony Renato? I'll jump in and answer this one, my first opinion, and I'll see if you have any thoughts also. But to me, it's Renato. I have, I have not, I've been an Anthony Renato skeptic. I'm still an Anthony Renato skeptic. And the skepticism to me comes from, this is a guy who's had real trouble being healthy, showing the stuff that he shows when he is fully healthy. Right now, what we're seeing this year is a guy who's fully healthy, and the stuff is showing it. He's been pretty consistently mid-90s, locating the fastball. He's got good downward plane on it. He really can dominate uh, you know, when he's, when he's pitching like this. The only question I really have, if Anthony Rado can keep up what he's done at the start of this year, he could be a, a front-end rotation starter, at worst a middle-end of the rotation starter. But my skepticism comes back always with him to, can he do it for a full year? Can he do it for multiple years? Because if you look at the track record of the past five years, there's been maybe a year and a half of those five years, maybe if you really want to be kind, two years of those five years, where he's been this before this year. So I'm still a little bit skeptical, but at the same time, you can't deny what he's doing. And what he's doing right now is showing you know some of the better stuff that we see among uh, minor league starting pitchers. Yeah, I, I still don't. I mean, what, what Almanzar is doing is impressive. I'd kind of written him off as a prospect. I didn't expect him to perform as well. But with Renato, I, I am buying it a little bit more and probably just echo a lot of what you just say because I, I think you're right on the mark. You know, his career high in innings, I think, is in a season is like 130. I don't think he's ever gone over that. Last year, he only threw about 38 innings. Health, durability, that's that's a big question that he's going to answer. You can't just – you can't be a guy who can only stay healthy for 100, 130 innings a year and, and hold up as a starter in the big league level. There's there's a, there are definitely medical concerns with Renato. But what he's showing <laughs> – the stuff that he has right now, it's it's as the stuff is as good, if not better than ever. The performance is is better than ever. I mean, it's he's never performed this well in his career for pretty much any stretch. Um, I'm buying on a on a talent level when he's out there and healthy. This is real, but like you said, the question is: Is he durable enough to maintain this over a full season workload for a starting pitcher? And the only way we're going to know that is just more time. I mean, I would, I would, it would be great if we had a, a nice, easy answer. Say, yeah, he's, we know he's going to be durable or, or we know he's going to break down. But, you know, we don't know. We know there's red flags there. But on talent, yeah, definitely buying it. But the durability, going to have to wait and see. Yeah, um, that's, <laughs> I think that's the only way you can approach it right now because that's really the question with Anthony Renato. And I'll tell you this. The scout who can feel confident on that, on projecting that, is a very good scout because I've talked to a lot of guys who, who they can't, you know, they have feel, they have, I think this is going to happen, but no one has a really, a, a really good read on that. So I'm going to take one more here, the Duke 68, which is, he just, his name listed on Twitter is the Duke, so sorry for not having your full name here, but uh, has Je- Jesse Winker's hot start shown a benefit of being polished or does he have middle-of-the-order star potential? This is Red's outfitter, Jesse Winker, who I mentioned a little bit earlier as far as the teenagers who, who stood out in the Midwest League. I'll let you start this one, Ben. What, what do you think about Jesse Winker? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very encouraged by what he's doing. Like, like we were talking about, the Midwest League, we always got to keep the league and, and the context in mind where a guy is is doing something. You know, you go to the South Atlantic League and, you know, like we were talking about last time on the podcast with Trevor Story, I put up really nice numbers in, in Asheville in the South Atlantic League last year. And, you know, I did, you know, I like Trevor Story. This year it's... <laughs> You know, he's just completely falling apart. And a lot, maybe maybe some of it was because what he was doing last year was in the South Atlantic League and it was in Asheville. And it was a good hitter's park and, and maybe we were a little bit fooled. Maybe that contributes to it. But Winker's doing it in the Midwest League in the hardest months of the year to hit in the Midwest League. And he's showing, I think, a lot of really, really promising signs. Uh, a guy with a really good hitting approach. It's, you know... Maybe, you know, there was some thought before he's going to have to cut down on, on his strikeouts. Uh, I don't see that as a concern right now for him uh, at all. He, he really, I think he uses his, his whole body well in his swing. He's he's hitting for average. He's getting on base. He's hitting for power. There's there's just a lot. There's a lot of really encouraging signs. Yeah, I, I'm, I agree on that. The caveat I'll, I'll put out there is, is that he's going to have to really hit because – that's where his value is. He doesn't run real well. He's not a terrible outfielder by any stretch imagination, but he's a left fielder who's not going to have a whole lot of range because he doesn't run real well. Well, if you don't run real well, you're a left fielder in low A. It's all about the bat, obviously. And that's the thing. It's a very advanced bat. And what we'll have to see, I mean, I think that he's got a very good chance to be a solid regular. It's really hard to project a, a 19-year-old who, who's just hit low A and say, this guy's going to be a, a premium big league bat, you know, a, a star, just because he, he's still so far away. But there is the potential there because he is, it's a, it's a really good swing. It's, as far as just pure hitting talent, he's in the Reds organization. He's probably the best hitting prospect they've had since they had Votto and, uh, and Bruce in the organization. Now, they haven't had a whole lot of guys like that in the, meet, in the interim last couple of years, but that, he's that good as a hitter. But, again, we have to see because we're talking about a, a, you know, a teenager in, in, low, in his first month and a half of, of low A and really a bad first month in low A and a really good second month. So there's still a lot to, to see there, but it, you know, you get a lot to project. But... There's also a lot there. I mean, there's no doubt there's a lot there. And he's very much a guy to kind of keep an eye on as, as we go along. Well, Ben, thanks again for, uh, for all the insight, as always. Again, everyone there, thank you for the download. We do this at every Friday. We post it up on the site, the Prospect Handbook Podcast, and, and every week we're sponsored by DraftDay.com. And we want to remind you that DraftDay.com brings fantasy games that last for just one day at a time. At DraftDay, you can put your sports knowledge to the test and win real cash prizes. Winners are paid out every night. They're awarded over $10 million already, and it's completely legal to play. This week only, Draft Day is offering a free fantasy baseball game with $150 cash prizes just for BA listeners. Sign up by Monday at DraftDay.com and enter promo code PROSPECT to be entered. Thanks again for the download. We'll talk to you again next week as we get ready. The, the draft's not that far away. We had a draft podcast earlier this week. We're going to keep talking prospects as well, though. So thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.